Chapter 4 Is this a bad time? Not at all, Will, says Hannibal into the phone, dispatching the upside-down cat collar in front of him with the swift slice of his cleaver through the neck. He had hoped to let him wake up first before bleeding and butchering him, but it isn't worth the risk. Will's hearing is extraordinary, even by sentinel standards. Only the tinny sound quality of the phone prevents him from worrying about Will hearing the faltering pulse. I was just cutting up dinner. Would you like to join me this evening after our appointment? He nudges the body to keep the blood streaming neatly into the bucket below. The heart eating and cleaning out the body it used to keep alive. Actually, that's why I'm calling. Will sounds apologetic. I'm being called out to Stamford, Connecticut, so I can't make it tonight. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too. Ugh. Now I have to start calling around for a dog sitter. Catherine has finals. Don't bother. I can do it. Hannibal finishes detaching the head and sets it on his bench to remove the cheeks. I can't ask you for that. It's too far out of your way. You're not asking. I'm offering. I know how important your dogs are to you, and they know me. It's no trouble. Well, if you're sure. I am. Just tell me where to find the key. Hannibal peeks into the mouth and removes the tongue also. No future Ripper art installation for this. He'll take everything worth taking. Hannibal has been to Will's house twice before, but he's never explored it. The first time he was too enamored and concerned with Will, who was recovering from a brief but very severe zone after killing Garrett Jacob Hobbs. Hannibal slept longer than usual himself, and spent the next day filling Will's fridge with simple meals made from Will's own ingredients, removing himself before he wore out his welcome. The second time Will had just bludgeoned Eldon Stamets in Hannibal's defense, and was spattered with blood, eyes wide and nostrils flaring as he wrestled with what one of Hannibal's guiding instructors had called the Blessed Protector Impulse, and Hannibal wouldn't have noticed if they were on the moon. This is the first time he has visited the house by himself. He intends to take advantage. The dogs investigate him politely, calm and balanced, even in the absence of their pack leader. A few bits of sausage, and they leave him alone. He plays a few notes on the upright piano, as in tune as such a humble model can be. He's certain Will tunes it himself. He has a sudden mental image of playing his harpsichord for Will, at rest with his hearing fully extended, letting the music play over him as Hannibal's fingers play over the keys. The only other musical device in the room is a record player. Vinyl is much loved by those with hypercosis. They tend to find electronic music unpleasant. Hannibal has baseline hearing, but very discerning taste, so he sympathizes. He bypasses the kitchen, already knowing every inch of it by heart. Will keeps a narrow range of very plain food, of marginally acceptable freshness, except for the first-rate fish, which Will probably catches himself. Precious few herbs, spices, or other flavorings. The only salt is in a box for baking. The only alcohol is a half-empty bottle of whiskey. Dresser and closet, running gear and a disgraceful array of shabby old clothes. There is a great deal of stretch knit. There are holes. Everything is extremely soft and well laundered, stored neatly and with care. The newest items are the briefs and undershirts that Hannibal already knows Will sleeps in. He considers how much Will sweats, and concludes that he keeps enough around to change into dry ones whenever he needs them, and discards them when they become too badly stained to meet even Will's lax standards. Hannibal must ruminate on ways to upgrade the wardrobe of a man hypersensitive to both touch and perceived criticism of his working poor roots. The bottom drawer of the dresser yields an unexpected delight. 
a little bundle of several silk scarves. They're too small and thin to be of use as blindfolds. Hannibal brings one to his nose, and his groan feels pulled from the base of his spine. While it has been washed since, the faint odor of bleach, salt, and musk are unmistakable. This is a sex toy. Will lies in his bed, in this room, and touches himself with this scrap of silk until he comes. Not often enough, by how faded the smell is. Hannibal wins a brief debate with his sense of proprietary, and steals the most pungent scarf, stuffing it into his pocket. Something tells him he'll be retiring early tonight. The bathroom is largely unchanged from the last time Hannibal was here. Towels as soft and shabby as Will's clothes. Razor, toothbrush, and toothpaste marketed to hypersensitives. Cheap, plain soap. This time, Hannibal takes note of some very promising absences. The atrocious aftershave he has not smelled on Will since their second meeting is nowhere to be found. It's one thing to not wear it on days they will see each other out of consideration for Hannibal's hypersomnia, but getting rid of it entirely is going above and beyond. Neither can Hannibal find any traces of deodorant or antiperspirant. Born and bred in the humid South, Will may have simply given up on any product being able to withstand his copious sweating and settled for taking frequent showers. Hannibal is beginning to favor another theory. All surfaces, while old and worn, are spotlessly clean, and whatever products Will cleans with are so mild that Hannibal could live here himself without the least olfactory discomfort. Even the dogs smell like they get regular baths. Hannibal wonders if this is a little bit of what it's like to be Will. Standing in the breathing silence of Will's home, the spaces speak to him with noise and clarity. Will is repressing the full range of his sense of smell, because that would make him a fully-fledged sentinel, and that is something he doesn't want to be. Hannibal has yet to tease out all the reasons for that, but doubtless the exponential increase in zoning risks and concomitant necessity of a guide is a factor. Virtually every aspect of Will's home is chosen to avoid overstimulation, to support his own stability in the absence of a guide, yet he allows himself to be pulled back into the field where he is wildly overstimulated. He has reduced his living space to a single room, but he bought a two-story house. Upstairs are two bedrooms and a second bathroom, all completely empty. Most of the light switches are gathering dust, but all of the light bulbs are in working order. There is a magnifying glass on Will's fly-tying table that he clearly doesn't use himself. It's there so he can show someone else what he's working on. Hannibal's theory is this. Will, however unconsciously, has been waiting for a guide. The right guide. A guide who can see him, know him, accept him. Bond with him. Hannibal completed the most stringent guide training in the world on what amounts to a whim. Despite only having hypersomnia himself, his house is fully compatible with five-way hypersensitivity. He scrupulously avoids guiding clients with more than three enhanced senses. Until he met Will. Meeting Will was like being set on fire, and every time Hannibal sees him or thinks of him, he glows with renewed fervor. Hannibal believes that Will has been waiting for him, just as he has been waiting for Will. He moves to the fly-tying table. The lure in progress is a swipe of black and scarlet feathers, reminiscent of a Siamese fighting fish. Hannibal discerns the remaining piece in the design, adds it, ties it off. He picks up the finished lure and quite deliberately pierces his thumb on the hook, then licks away the blood. It tastes like a promise. It's all such a cliché. Miss Turner's forgiveness for her killer-upsetting will bringing it to Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter asking about his mother. Some lazy psychiatry, Dr. Lecter. Low-hanging fruit. 
he sneers. Dr. Lecter responds calmly. I suspect that fruit is on a high branch, very difficult to reach. His calm is an inexhaustible reservoir. Will soaks it up, a bomb where the company of most people grates. He sighs. Some things are clichés because they're common experiences. So is my mother. Never knew her. They lob the family ball back and forth. Will confesses his disconnection from the concept, and remembers to thank Dr. Lecter for feeding his dogs. He learned that Dr. Lecter was an orphan, and he shares a bit of his nomadic life with his father. Always the new boy at school. Always the stranger. Dr. Lecter reflects. Will's smile is toothy and humorless. Always. Most children with enhanced senses are tested in school, by staff, to determine their needs and by other children to determine their weaknesses. Tell me, Will, did you learn to manage your senses by yourself to avoid repeated rounds of this testing? It was just easier that way. By the end of junior high, Will was so braced for the sensory shock of the school day, so adroit at maintaining his isolation, exploiting his empathy, informed by his senses, to more effectively shun everyone that he could come and go at school with virtually no one even learning his name, much less that he was an odd body. Coping without a guide became a point of pride for you, making a virtue of necessity. Will nods. If you can't have something, better make sure you don't need it or want it. Am I wrong in my impression that you've reconciled yourself to needing a guide now? You're not wrong. He admitted it to Alana, who was just his friend. He can admit it to Dr. Lecter, who has done the actual work of helping him. You can make a virtue of that, too. Enjoy things it was not safe to enjoy before. Is this the point where you produce more mushroom bacon risotto? Dr. Lecter chuckles and says, No, but I am glad you found it memorable. I had something simpler in mind for the moment. He gets up and goes to his desk, then comes back with a brown paper bag. He doesn't sit back down in his chair, though. He moves to the couch. Will turns to watch him. Dr. Lecter reaches into the bag and comes out with a pomegranate, small, probably organic, plump and perfect like it's only recently off the tree. It probably costs more than its weight in premium steak or cheese. I couldn't help but notice the limited amount of fresh fruit in your home. And it couldn't possibly because I don't always keep up with the grocery shopping. Dr. Lecter looks unimpressed. You make all your dog food from scratch and rotate a two-week supply through your freezer. Okay, you got me. I don't like to have too much temptation around the house. Isn't that basic sensory management? The most basic. There are more advanced techniques than simple abstinence. Dr. Lecter spreads his handkerchief in his lap, then produces a small pocket knife and scores the skin of the pomegranate. He grips it firmly and twists, and the fruit comes apart, revealing a neat mound of bright red arils. He pats the couch. Come sit by me. Will pads over, gaze fixed on the pomegranate. This seems risky. On your own it might be, but you're not on your own anymore, are you? I can help you with the risks. Dr. Elector pulls at the membrane beneath one of the mounds and tips the loose arils into his palms. He holds his open hand out to Will. I want to help you enjoy yourself, Will. Will looks at the fruit, with the white seeds visible in the red pulp. They remind Will of pulled teeth. He takes one and rolls it between his fingertips, feeling its smoothness, mouth already watering as his sense of taste dials up. His eyes flick up to Dr. Lecter's face, and he puts the arill in his mouth and bites down. His eyes flutter shut of their own volition, and he grunts. The taste explodes across his tongue. 
aesthetic juice bursting out from the crisp, fragile flesh, the crunchy little seed almost nutty inside. Good. Dr. Lecter sounds particularly husky. Will clears his throat. You can smell how good it is. But I can't taste or feel what you can. Can you describe it? He licks his lips. Um, intense. Take another one. Dr. Lecter is pressing an arill into his hand. Will takes it. The sensations are even more powerful the second time. This is worse than the risotto. That was complex, layered, dozens of flavors and textures demanding his full concentration. This is so pure, leaving his concentration in tatters, and the pleasure increasingly insistent. The third arill he eats with shaking hands and a twist of arousal in his gut, followed swiftly by a flash of panic. I need to stop. I'm overloading. I... Dr. Elector shushes him and holds the next one against Will's lips himself. Just let it happen. What do they say? It's a feature, not a bug. Will's mouth falls open in shock at Dr. Elector, as old country a man as he has ever met, making a software joke. And Dr. Elector pops the fruit inside. Will breathes hard through his nose, but he doesn't pull away. The pleasure keeps spilling over from his mouth into the rest of his body. He's getting hard and hot and confused about why he's holding back from this. And when he swallows, this time he opens his mouth for more. Dr. Elector gives him more. He patiently feeds Will the tiny pomegranate arils from his clean, dry fingers. He murmurs encouragement and reassurances when Will starts to gasp and whimper. And when Will falls onto his back on the couch, Dr. Elector follows him down to lean at his side. At some point, he gathers up a bunch of arils in one hand, and Will lunges up and licks away several at once, getting a taste of his guide's skin in the process. And that's all she wrote. Will arches and comes with Dr. Lecter's fingers in his mouth and his head full of sweetness. Open your eyes, Will, says Dr. Lecter. Look at me. Will can't not do as he asks right now, still dizzy with aftershocks. He looks. Dr. Lecter's expression is warm, his cheeks flushed. You did very well. I am so pleased with you. That's more than a little of his particular guide timber in the words, pushing them firmly into the path of Will's oncoming embarrassment. Will turns his head away enough to slip Dr. Lecter's fingers out of his mouth. The ridges of his fingertips sliding over Will's bottom lip cause an exhausted twitch. Is this a standard guiding service? His voice is a rack. Dr. Lecter breaks into an actual smile. Not in so intimate a form, but the intent is the same teaching clients to view their enhanced senses as a pleasure instead of just a burden. That's some teaching. Will feels like Dr. Lecter has created some kind of bubble universe for them, pushing out such uncouth trivialities as shame and hesitation and what to do about the rapidly cooling mess in Will's briefs. He says, I wish I could do something to thank you, and knows that Dr. Lecter will see he means exactly that, without any innuendo. Although, that is a thought. Your trust is gift enough, but... What? What are you doing over Christmas? Had Will answered nothing, Hannibal would have invited him to his house, and decorated to make Will the centerpiece in every room. Instead, the answer to Hannibal's question is, getting drunk and playing with the dogs. Hannibal is invited. He accepts on the condition that he be allowed to provide a ham, and wine, and dessert, and coffee. He gets everything ready the day before, feeling a ghost of very national glee at the wickedness of preparing meat on Christmas Eve, and does the cooking Christmas morning. 
The part of ham will be played by smoked hip of cat collar, baked in a glaze of honey and cloves. He surrounds it on the platter with chunks of honeycomb and fresh blood oranges, before sealing it under the locking travel lid. Whole and piping hot, it will keep warm in there for hours, ready to eat whenever the day's plans allow. It is joined in the trunk of his car by an appropriately fruity red wine, a dark chocolate tort embedded with soft-dried figs, and good coffee in the same carafe Hannibal brought to his second meeting with Will. Hannibal considers for a moment, then adds a toothbrush and a change of clothes, just in case. When he gets to Wolf Trap, Will is in the yard, throwing snowballs. He waves at Hannibal and comes up to help him carry the food into the house. I should have known you'd bring wine. Food is hardly food without it. Hannibal is not sure his body would even know how to digest an evening meal without wine. And I'm not fond of whiskey. Not fond of meat whiskey? What a shocker. Will's loose posture and easy smile, not to mention his breath, suggest he got started on the festivities early. Lucky for you, doctor, I made cider. He sets the tort, wine, and coffee on the kitchen table and moves to the stove, where a large pot is emitting a wonderful smell. By which, I mean, I brought cider, and heated it up with some bourbon, ginger, lemon, cherries, and black pepper. Turned out pretty good, if I do say so myself. He ladles some into a mug and hands it to Hannibal, and gets himself some more as well. By the taste, Hannibal suspects it's more like bourbon heated up with cider, but it is still delicious. Spicy and fruity and very warming. It starts to work the instant it hits his stomach. When he exhales, he feels like the vapor trailing out his nose ought to be visible. This is excellent, Will. Thank you. Will buries his nose into his mug to hide his grin. Hannibal is appalled at how cute he is. Some day, he vows, he will see Will this pink and sparkling while entirely sober. For today, drunks are always better company when one is drunk oneself. In short order, Hannibal finds himself following Will out into the yard to continue the game he was playing when Hannibal arrived. Snowfetch. Also called no fetch, Will confides, then shows Hannibal why. The dogs leap into the air to catch the snowball, snapping into them with wet chunks. Their confusion when the snowballs vanish has Will clutching his sides with laughter. Hannibal laughs too, but he isn't watching the dogs. They put more cider in a thermos and take the dogs for a walk down to a stream bordering Will's property. I was down here when Stamet showed up with you, says Will. That explains the waiters you were wearing. Waiters or no, Will was magnificent that day, silent and swift in his approach, and precise in his attack. Hannibal flatters himself that it was as much the threat to his person as the trespass on Will's property that got his sentinel instincts to come roaring to the forefront. He silently toasts the late Eldon Stamets' contribution to their relationship with another cup of cider. They follow the stream. Several dogs bring Will's stick to throw. He always obliges. Eventually, the small white one, with a hideous underbite, puts its paws against Will's leg and whines pitifully, and Will picks it up and zips it into his coat. Poor old Susie, he says, patting the scruffy head protruding just under his chin. You get cold, don't you, girl? They pass the thermos back and forth as they walk. Will remains flushed and cheerful. Hannibal may or may not be weaving by the time they start working their way back towards the house. Are you doing okay, doctor? Hannibal beams at him. Dear Will, this is the best Christmas I have had in years. Will chuckles. Not going to be the best day after Christmas if we don't get some water into you before supper. You shouldn't try to match a gram drink for drink. We can really put it away. You don't worry about drinking too much? 
Alcoholism is a very common coping mechanism among hypersensitives, being a moderately effective sensory damper. Will shakes his head. I'm strict about when I drink. Bedtimes and holidays. Wine with a fancy meal. He looks up ahead and stops in his tracks. Ah, hell. Maybe I spoke too soon. What is it? There's an animal from my dreams in my yard. Hannibal follows his gaze. He sees something, too. A hulking, antlered shape. He's about to tell Will so, when the mention of dreams triggers a suspicion. Describe it to me. It's a stag with raven feathers instead of fur. My oh-so-helpful brain made it up out of the Cassie Boyle crime scene. Ravens all over the stag head. Been dreaming about it ever since. Go! Shoot! He waves his arms as they get closer. Hannibal sees it clearly in the failing daylight. A powerful, impossible beast. He is blurrily convinced that it's an amalgamated spirit animal, born of his first gift to Will, the two of them reaching out for each other from the moment they met. According to all known accounts, such an occurrence is typically the final event in the bonding process, but he and Will are hardly typical. Still, if he's right, it's a tremendously good sign. Is it really so bad? Will's eyebrows pinch together. In my dreams, it's fine. Frightening, but exciting. But it doesn't belong here. I just finished walking in the woods. Is that what it wants you to do? Follow you into the wilderness? They're very close now. Hannibal can smell its feathers and hot, not entirely vegetarian breath. So far, none of my dreams last long enough to be sure. Hannibal wonders which of them was the raven and which was the stag before they joined. He is inclined to think he was the raven, being dedicated to mischief and beauty. Besides, Will is the magnificent one. He's really very drunk. He speaks slowly, refusing to allow his words to slur outright. My professional advice as your psychiatrist is to let it be for tonight. Are you hungry? Will cocks his head. I could eat. Then let's eat. They stop on the porch and clean the dog's paws before trooping inside. Will parks Hannibal in a chair with a tumbler of water and produces a large casserole dish full of roasted vegetables from the oven. Tightly covered and with the oven never opened, the vegetables have kept warm for hours, not unlike the ham. Are you still my psychiatrist? Will asks. Psychiatrists don't spend Christmas with their patients, and I'm pretty sure most guys don't feed their clients fruit until the client comes in their pants, not to mention I've never paid you a dime. Hannibal sips his water and thinks carefully about what to say. All my expertise is at your disposal. I will keep everything we say and do together in strictest confidence, and cite confidentiality laws if challenged. But I must admit I have not thought of you as my patient or my client in quite some time. So what am I, then? Your friend? Your... sentinel? Will doesn't look up as he slices the ham. This is the first time he's said the word in relationship to himself without it being a denial. Hannibal wonders how long it will take to happen again without the help of hot bourbon cider by the leader. Yes, I think is the answer to that. Guiding exists on a spectrum, just as enhanced senses do. Of course, when it comes to sentinel guide relationships, they are already out on the far end of the spectrum. Certainly the light from the professionalism won't reach Hannibal for a million years. Will sets two filled plates on the table. The ham looks great. If I weren't half pickled, I'd need every guide trick in the book to not zone out on it. Wait until you try the tort, says Hannibal, and bestirs himself to open the wine. The other reason Will doesn't worry about drinking too much is the built-in aversion therapy of a hangover when he does overindulge. 
He fortifies himself with aspirin, clips on his mic, and takes vicious comfort in the haggard faces of his student when he speaks, knowing the sound of his own voice is at least half as painful to them as it is to himself. He got so drunk he saw the raven stag will awake. He got so drunk he told Dr. Lecter about seeing it. Dr. Lecter, wobbling on his feet and bleary-eyed, had remained unfazed and intrigued, as he always seems to be with Will. He doesn't remember much more about the evening than that. He knows the food was so good that if he'd been sober, it might have turned into another game of sensory overload chicken, cheerleaded by Dr. Lecter, who definitely gets some kind of kick out of scrambling Will's brain with pleasure, even if he has never touched Will below the neck. Food being good is a given when Dr. Lecter is involved, though. His influence even inspires Will to try new things on his own, like that fucking rocket fuel that called itself Spiced Bourbon Cider. Will cannot remember the last person whose company he so enjoyed, and who gives every indication of enjoying Will's company just as much. Will doesn't recall what they talked about, but their inebriated conversation continued until the both of them more or less passed out. They shuffled painfully through eggs and coffee the next morning, full of regret for the cider, but not for spending the holiday together. Now Will soldiers grimly through his talking points about biting and sucking and bruises. He wonders if Dr. Lecter is a biter. Anyone who is that much of a gourmand is likely to have one hell of an oral fixation, and no one is that buttoned up without something wild under the buttons. But Dr. Lecter's waters run very still and very deep indeed. So far, all Will has glimpsed is the capacity to not only take Will's darkest secrets in stride, but to appear increasingly fond of Will for them. It's the sort of response that gets Will wondering what would happen if he kissed Dr. Lecter, just grabbed his guide by his ridiculous paisley tie, and... Jack walks into the classroom. Jack bellows at his students to leave. Will feels like his throbbing head may start sprouting hairline cracks at any moment, like creaking tinkles of fault lines and glass before it shatters. You're making it difficult to provide an education, Jack. We found a match to a set of prints we pulled from the Turner home. They belong to a 13-year-old boy from Reston, Virginia. His name is Connor First. Another kid? Another kid missing. Vanished ten months ago. Case was never solved. How many kids in the First family? Three, just like the Turner family. We're ready to go when you are, and you're ready to go now, so let's go. Will's stomach turns like it didn't for his hangover. You're expecting a crime scene. Sometimes, Will gets lost in his head, instead of his senses. It isn't until she asks him a question that he even realizes Beverly Katz is there. Hmm? What are you looking at? Both these kids are small, underweight for their age. You think there's a connection? I'm thinking possible ADHD diagnosis for both boys. Ritalin, Focalin, any medication containing methylphenidide can affect appetite and slow long-term growth in kids. He remembers being Jesse and Connor's age, how his sense of taste ricocheted between so suppressed everything tasted like sawdust to so ramped up everything tasted like a slap in the face. His erratic eating habits probably cost him a good couple of inches off his final adult height. ADHD is a better bet, though. It's about ten times more common than being on the hypersensitivity spectrum. Another thing about Willard Wigan, he had a lonely childhood. He used his tiny sculptures as an escape. Will stares at her. Who's Willard Wigan? Beverly looks amused and doesn't answer him, instead telling him how Miss First was shot with a gun belonging to the mother of a boy named C.J. Lincoln. Isn't this case just the fucking gift that keeps on giving? Will blows into Hannibal's office like a storm, throwing his jacket onto Hannibal's couch. It's a measure of how far gone Hannibal is that he finds this endearing rather than offensive. 
Will's back is rigid with tension as he paces around the room. With his hands shoved in his pockets, his slacks are pulled tight over his buttocks. They're lovely, small, and round. Hannibal licks his lips and stares. He notices them more now than he did when he saw Will wandering around in just his underwear. He doesn't normally want to bite someone quite like this, but then no one is quite like Will. Tell me, why are you so angry? I'm angry about those boys. I'm angry because I know when I find them I can't help them. I can't give them back what they just gave away. He spits, and here is the resentment, where before there was disconnect and void. Will is not an island because he wants to be. Family. Yeah, we're calling them the Lost Boys. From Peter Pan? Hannibal is only passingly familiar with the story, but it's enough to get Will sitting down and talking about the case, coming at it more analytically. Not that it does any good. It sounds like the entire BSU is spinning its collective wheels. Hannibal's experience of conventional family is reduced to speechless impressions. In rooms of his memory palace he resolutely does not visit, he has no additional insights to offer Will. It's Alana who turns the key for Will in the end. Brothers looking for a mother. They're killing the mother's last. They find convenience store footage of Chris O'Halloran with an unidentified woman, and then they're all racing for Fayetteville, North Carolina, even Will. Will shakes with relief at not walking into yet another decaying massacre site. They're in time to save the O'Hallorans, at the price of C.J. Lincoln. And while there may be no saving Jesse Turner, he'll get a chance. Chris. Chris is running for the pool house, gun in hand. Will chases him. Chris, wait! The kid turns his gun on Will in a blind panic. He can hear a SWAT team member aiming behind him and he lifts his hand, then turns his gun away. Don't shoot. It's okay. He tries to pull some of Dr. Lecter's calm and confidence into his voice, but he knows he still sounds too urgent. You're home now. Put the gun down, Christopher. Chris shifts his weight from one foot to the other, wavering. They almost have him, until a woman slips out of the pool house and presses a gun to Chris's chest. Her other hand strokes down Chris's face and neck to rest heavy on his little shoulder. Shoot him, Christopher, she says, and her voice, oh God, her voice. If this woman wasn't a guide, she could have been. Will drops his gun, drops to his knees, so that his scared, dark-haired face is on a level with Chris's own. Christopher, he whispers, please. For Chris, it will be like shooting into a mirror. It buys them the second they need for Beverly Katz to run up alongside and shoot the woman in the neck. Will flinches, but more from the shattering of the woman's pajant than the report of the gun. He dialed his hearing down hard before they even broke down the front door. Beverly runs up and relieves Chris of his gun, then ushers him away. The would-be mother defeated by a woman who isn't anyone's mother. Will takes over to see if she feels the irony of it, but if she does, it's lost in the noise of her overall pain as she dies. Will seeks him out again when the case is over, still unsettled by the emotions it provoked. Hannibal is delighted. He prepares simple comfort food, high-life eggs and brioche. He does not want to become predictable in pushing rich or intense foods on Will, however delightful his response is. He briefly considers offering Will some Silo's Ben tea, but he does not need Will making a breakthrough and manifesting a heightened sense of smell while the last of cat collar is sizzling away in the skillet. She reminded me of you, a little. The woman leading the Lost Boys? Will's perceptive leaps are not always flattering. Hannibal's desire to care for Will is certainly comparable to the mother love Will never had, but his other desires are as far from parental as they can be. Her voice. I think she might have had guide aptitude. The ability to influence is only one aspect of guiding potential. 
she sought to corrupt others from themselves for her own ends. A true guide helps others to more fully become themselves. Hannibal cuts himself off from a much longer speech, chopping potatoes with vigor. Will tilts his orange juice in a salute. I defer to your passion. This is a much better train of thought. Passion's good. Gets the blood pumping. Will quirks an eyebrow. Does it? You have the slowest, most regular heartbeat I've ever heard in a healthy person. You could speed it, dear Will. I'm good at regulation. Will grins. Believe it or not, I had detected that already. He taps his temple. That's why they pay me the big bucks. They keep up the banter all throughout dinner, and Hannibal sends Will home to his little bed and his little family of strays with a smile on his face. Then he goes out and slaughters a woman who didn't tip her waitress last year. He'll make something special for Will from the heart.